It's good to see you again this morning. What a wonderful day of worship we've had so far. I want to thank all of our, our men, our brothers, for doing a wonderful job so far leading us in our worship to God. We truly, truly appreciate your service. As we begin our study this morning from God's Word, I want to ask you to go back to the Scripture reading this morning in Matthew 23 and consider with me those verses again. As Brother Elliot read that section of Scripture from the Word of God, there was a word that you should have noticed being used by Jesus over and over again in that context, and it's the word hypocrite. Hypocrite, at least seven times in those verses. Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites in verse number 13. And in verse number 14, in verse 15, in verse 23, 25, 27, 29, Jesus calls these religious leaders of his day hypocrites over and over again in those verses. And so I guess the question is, what is that? What, what, what is a hypocrite? What is this word that Jesus uses here throughout, throughout this section of Scripture? Why is it such a bad thing for a person to be a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? Well, simply put, a hypocrite is someone who engages in hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who is an actor or a pretender or a fraud. In the case of religion, a hypocrite is someone who lives a double life. A, a hypocrite is someone who acts or behaves in a matter that is contradictory to their professed beliefs. That is essentially what a hypocrite is. And, and notice again how, how that's exactly what Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees. According to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, while they knew the Bible, while they knew the scriptures, while they read the scriptures, studied the scriptures, Memorize the scriptures, taught the scriptures, while they did those things in their lives, according to Jesus, in the eyes of God, they were nothing more than a bunch of hypocrites. They were nothing more than a bunch of frauds and pretenders. They were not really trying to please the Lord in, in, in their lives. Jesus said that these men were hypocrites. The question, though, is what about us? What about me and, and what about you? I mean, in your life right now, are you like the scribes and the Pharisees? Are you also a religious hypocrite or as you evaluate your life, are you the real deal? Are you a genuine and authentic disciple? Are you the kind of Christian who isn't just putting an act on on Sunday, but you're really trying to live this stuff? You're really trying to do right. You're really trying to serve the Lord every single day. Are you the real deal? Or are you a hypocrite? I want to submit to you that if you're a hypocrite, if I'm a hypocrite, if we're hypocrites, then in addition to negatively affecting our relationship with God, living a life like that, living a life full of spiritual hypocrisy, it also negatively affects a lot of people. It also negatively affects a lot of people that we interact with. 
and build relationships with every single day. It also also forms or causes a, a spiritual ripple effect that, that maybe we don't think about too often. For example, if, if we live the life of a hypocrite, if we live the life of spiritual hypocrisy, one group of people that we're going to negatively impact is we're going to negatively impact the world. We're going to negatively impact the lost. We're going to negatively impact the lost people in the world that we're supposed to try, supposed to be trying to win with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is the first step? What is the first step to effective and successful evangelism? What is the first step to effective and successful evangelism? Someone says, well, the first step to effective and successful evangelism is inviting. It's inviting someone to church. It's inviting someone to come and worship God. It's inviting someone to sit down at the kitchen table with me and have a Bible study. Someone says that the first step to successful and effective evangelism requires a simple invitation. And my friends, while I do agree, while I agree with you that a simple invitation is powerful, and while that is something that every disciple in this place can do, let me also suggest that before that simple invitation is given, there's something else that needs to be done first. There's something else that needs to be exercised first. There's something else that needs to be performed first if that simple invitation is really going to be effective. And so, can Jesus help us with this? Well, I know he can. He can help us in a verse you're familiar with. I know you know this verse, but we need to read it here. We need to read this verse because it goes right with what we're talking about right now. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 5 and verse 16, Jesus is speaking to disciples. The vast majority of people in this room are disciples. There are Christians in this room. And Jesus says, if you're a disciple, if you're a Christian, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. Notice how Jesus says that if we're going to be effective when it comes to the work of evangelism, if we're going to be effective when it comes to the work of trying to win the loss with the gospel, then it starts with shining. It starts with living right. It starts with living in such a way before the world that they may see our good works and then want to glorify our Father who's in heaven. Jesus says the that the first step to effective and successful evangelism requires shining, and that really shouldn't be a big surprise to us, right? That really shouldn't be a shocker. That really shouldn't be something that's like rocket science. I mean, think about it. Do you think we're going to be successful? Do you really think we're going to be successful in inviting someone here to come and worship God with us or inviting someone to sit down and have a Bible study with us, but we're first not living right in front of them? We're first not living according to the gospel? We're first not living according to this message that we're trying to sell them on? I mean, do you think, do you really think we're going to be effective in selling a lost person on the life of a Christian when they know, when they can recognize that we go to church every 
single Sunday, but when we're around them, we talk just like them. We curse with every other word just like them. We laugh at dirty jokes just like them. We go to the bar with them on the weekends. We dress immodestly. We post inappropriate things on our social media pages. We even gossip with them about people at the very church that we're trying to invite them to come and visit. I mean, do you think we're going to be effective in the work of evangelism when the people that we are evangelizing recognize that we're really, that we're really living a double life? We're really living a hypocritical life. In case you're struggling with answering that question right now, let me go ahead and just tell you that Jesus gives the answer to the question in this verse. Jesus tells us the answer is, is no. Absolutely not. We are not going to be effective in winning the loss with the gospel if we're not first living right in front of them, if we're not first shining our lights in such a way that they may see our good works. Peter makes a similar point in 1 Peter chapter 3. Please go in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse number 1, the apostle Peter says these words in 1 Peter 3 and verse 1. Peter says in the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husband so that, it, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the what? By the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Who is Peter talking to there in those verses? Well, we can see clearly who he's talking to. We can see how in these verses Peter is talking to women Christian women who may be married to men who are not Christians. He's talking to Christian women who may be married to men who are unbelievers. Peter says that while that can be a very discouraging thing, there's always hope. That there's always a chance as long as that relationship stays intact, there's always an avenue provided to convert that unbelieving husband or that unbelieving wife. And notice how that avenue doesn't involve pestering. It doesn't involve aggravating or nagging or harassing or trying to pressure someone to do something that they really don't want to do. Instead, according to Peter, the most effective process to convert an unbelieving spouse begins with living right in front of them. It begins by living righteously, by living godly, by living a life of a genuine disciple in front of them every single day. Here, Peter, he's saying the same thing. He's saying the same thing as Jesus. He's just using it in the context of marriage there. But speaking of Jesus again, go back to Matthew 23 one more time. Go back to Matthew 23 and notice something. Notice something interesting that Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, verse 15, verse 15, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. We're talking about evangelism right now, right? Well, notice how according to Jesus, when it came to the scribes and the Pharisees, they did that. 
they were evangelistic. They were very evangelistic. Jesus says they would travel long distances on sea and land to convert one Gentile to Judaism. But unfortunately, once they did that over a period of time, the person or the people they converted would become more corrupt than they were before. They would become twice as bad. They would become even more deserving of the horrors of hell. Question, how in the world is that possible? How in the world was it possible for the scribes and the Pharisees to make their converts even more corrupt than they were before? Well, my friends, there are a lot of factors probably involved in that. But according to Jesus, the main factor in that was the hypocrisy of these men. It was the corruptness and wickedness of these men. Jesus says the hypocritical and fraudulent lifestyles of the scribes and the Pharisees did more harm to the cause of evangelism than good. Now, there are many other verses we could go to to make our point right now, but I think you get the point, don't you? I think you can see that when it comes to unbelievers in this world, when it comes to the lost people that are here in the valley where we live, we need to understand they're watching us. They're watching us and they're listening to us. They're listening to us very carefully. They're listening to our claim to be Christians. And if our daily lives don't line up with that claim, they're going to notice that. They're going to remember that. They're especially going to remember that when we start trying to convert them. Let me tell you something. The worst thing, the worst thing you could ever hear someone who is not a Christian say to a Christian is, I didn't even know you were a Christian. You invite them to come to a Bible class, you invite them to come to a worship service, you invite them to a gospel meeting or to sit down and have a Bible study with you. And the first thing they say is, I didn't even know you were a Christian. I didn't even know you were part of any kind of church. I would have never thought that you were even a, a religious person. Let me tell you something. If we ever hear a lost person, a non-Christian say that kind of stuff to us, then that only means one thing. And that is we have not been doing what Jesus talks about in this verse. We have not been shining. We have not been living lives designed to draw people unto God. Instead, we've been living that double life. We've been living that life of hypocrisy. We've been living that life that is spiritually fraudulent. And the work of evangelism has been negatively impacted as a result. A life of spiritual, of spiritual hypocrisy negatively impacts the world. And our mission to win the world. But then a second group of people that spiritual hypocrisy negatively, negatively impact and is, is our children. It's our kids. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 5, the Apostle Paul says some things to his friend, his young friend, the young preacher Timothy. He says to him, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, 
which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Notice how in this verse, Paul, when describing Timothy's faith, says he had a sincere faith. Some of your translations use the word genuine, right? Says he had a sincere faith. It says he, has a, he, had a, he had a genuine faith. Question, what does that mean? What does it mean when Paul says that Timothy had a sincere or genuine faith? Well, when the Apostle Paul says that Timothy had a sincere or a genuine faith, what he means, what he is telling us, is Timothy was not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Timothy was not a hypocrite. Timothy was not a religious fraud or, or pretender. He didn't behave one way in public and another way in private. Instead, Timothy was the real deal. Timothy was a genuine and authentic disciple. Timothy was someone who truly loved the Lord and he tried his best to live according to the gospel that he preached. That's what Paul tells us about Timothy's faith. And it is interesting how Timothy developed that faith. Going back to the verse, notice very carefully how Paul says that the sincere or genuine faith that was in Timothy was first somewhere else. He says it was first in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice. But Paul says that Timothy learned what real and, and genuine discipleship was by first observing them, by first watching them and listening to them through their daily example. They showed Timothy firsthand what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. They were a model of godly living in the life of Timothy when he was just a child. And I want to suggest that the same thing they did for him as a child is exactly what we need to be doing for our children today. You see, in addition, in addition to me, and I'm a father of two, in addition to me being the number one teacher of God's word to my children, and yes, you heard me correctly, I said that on purpose. I am the father of those two children. And I am supposed to be the number one teacher of God's word to those children, not the elders, not the shepherds, not the deacons, not the Bible class teachers. And don't misunderstand, the Bible class teachers here do a wonderful job. They do an amazing job. They do a fabulous job, but as amazing and fabulous as their job may be, what they do on their best day will never be nothing more than a small supplement at best. What they do on their best day will never be able to replace the word of God in Ephesians 6 and verse 4, where Paul says, fathers, that's me, fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I don't care how great the Bible class teachers do here, it will never be able to replace what that verse says. It will never be anything more than a small supplement at best. According to the Bible, Sean Jeffries, 
is supposed to be the number one teacher of God's word to my children. I'm supposed to be teaching them the word of God, talking with them about the word of God. In fact, beyond carving out time every single day to talk with them about God and teach them about God, another thing I have a responsibility to do is show them how to live for God. I need to show them how to live the word of God. I need to show them how to live a Christian life that is completely void of hypocrisy. Just like I show my son how to shoot a basketball. Just like I show him how to throw a football. Just like I show Faith how to clean her room and how to use the iPad so I can get some peace every now and then in my life. Just like I show my kids how to do that kind of stuff, I also need to be showing them how to live like a Christian. I also need to be showing them how to talk like a Christian and how to treat people like a Christian and how to recognize and be repulsed by sin like a Christian should be. I also need to be showing them what a godly husband is all about and what a godly father is all about. I also need to be showing them that the same person who claims to be a Christian in this place, who claims to love God when I come here on Sunday, that's the same person they're going to get at home. Not just here, but at home, they're going to see a person of prayer. They're going to see a person of Bible study, Bible reading. They're going to see a person trying to win the lost. They're going to see a person trying to offer service and good works to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just here, but at home, they're going to see somebody who tries to live a holy life. They're, they're not going to see a dad who drinks and who curses and gossips and abuses his wife and is unwilling to show remorse and repent and ask for forgiveness. When I, when I mess up, not just here, but at home, I need to be showing my children how to have a real and genuine faith. I need to be showing them what it means to live for Jesus Christ. I need to do that for their own spiritual development. I need to be doing that so they can understand that, that being a Christian is not just something someone professes to be. It's not just something that someone claims to be, but instead it's a way of life. It's who I am. It's what I'm all about. I've told you this several times from the pulpit before, but I'm going to say it again because I don't think I can say this enough. If I'm a hypocrite, if I'm involved in spiritual hypocrisy, if I come here in a suit, singing these songs, praying these prayers, taking the Lord's Supper, following along in my Bible, doing all that stuff, but go home and be a totally different person, I probably could do a pretty good job fooling a lot of people. I probably could do a pretty good job fooling the people in my community. I probably could do a pretty good job fooling the elders, fooling the deacons. I probably could even fool you. I probably could do the same thing to you that the scribes and the Pharisees were doing to the people 2,000 years ago. It is not hard to fool people that you only see two times a week. That's not hard to do, but let me tell you something that is hard. Let me tell you something that is impossible. Let me tell you about two groups of people that we cannot fool when it comes to our faith. First, we can't fool the Godhead, right? 
We can't fool the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we also can't fool our kids. We can't fool our kids. We can't fool our children. If there's anybody who knows, if we have a sincere faith, our kids do. Our kids know the truth about us. Our kids get to see what goes on behind the curtain. They get to see what goes on in daily life. They get to see how we really are when we leave this place or when we leave a potluck or a baby shower or some other gathering where there's a bunch of Christians. Our kids live with us all the time and they're watching us all the time. They're listening to us all the time. They're observing us all the time. And if we don't want them to view us as nothing more than hypocrites. If we don't want them to grow up confused, thinking that Christianity is only something you do on Sunday, if we want to ensure that the teaching we're trying to give them from the Bible really sticks and really resonates in their hearts, then guess what? We better make sure we're living it in front of them. We better make sure we're practicing what we preach. We better make sure we're doing for them what Lois and Eunice did for Timothy, and that is having a sincere and a genuine faith. Spiritual hypocrisy impacts the world, and it impacts our children. But then third, and finally, I want to say this. The spiritual hypocrisy also impacts the church. It impacts brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever heard someone say before, you ever heard someone say, I don't want to go to that particular church, whatever church it is, I don't want to go to that particular church because it's full of hypocrites. You ever heard someone say that before? You ever heard someone say, I don't want to go to that church because it is full of hypocrites. That is a common statement. That is made by a lot of people in our society and is usually made for a couple of different reasons. First, this kind of statement is typically made when a person is just trying to justify living a sinful lifestyle. Usually when people are determined to not submit to God or they're determined to do their own thing and live a wicked and sinful life, they like to they like to pass the blame. They like to pass responsibility. They like to say things like, well, I don't want to go to that church over there because it's just full of hypocrites. Typically, people will make that statement when they're just trying to justify continuing to live an ungodly life. But a second reason, a second reason why you might hear this statement sometimes is because, unfortunately, sometimes it's just true. Sometimes it's just right on the money. Sometimes there really are hypocrites in the church. In fact, that shouldn't really surprise us because there's always been, been some hypocrites in the church. There have been hypocrites in the church since the very beginning of the church. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, what were they? Hypocrites of the church. The apostle Peter in Galatians chapter 2, what did he call Peter out for? For being a hypocrite in the church. The brother in, a, his, in adultery with his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5, what was he? He's a hypocrite in the church. There have always been hypocrites in the church. There have always been some spiritually fraudulent people in the Lord's church. I just need to make sure I'm not one of them. I just need to make sure that I'm not a hypocrite in the church because if I'm a hypocrite in the church, I'm going to negatively impact the church. 
I'm going to bring shame on the church. I'm going to bring discouragement to a lot of people if my hypocrisy is ever exposed. I'm reminded of this verse right here. I know it's in the Old Testament, but I think there's a good principle here to consider. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 14, remember King David, the man after God's own heart. There was a time when he did some awful. He did some terrible. He took another man's wife. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And, in, and then to try to cover his sin, he set her husband Uriah up to be murdered or to be killed in battle. Remember that? Well, eventually Nathan the prophet comes to him. He's sent by God. And he exposes David's sin and he says to him, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. Notice how while God certainly forgave David for his sins, there still were some negative consequences that came as a result of those sins. One was the innocent child was going to die as a result. But even above that, Nathan told David that some damage had been done to the cause of God. Nathan told David that because of his deed, because of his adultery and his murder, he had given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Question, what does that mean? What does Nathan mean when he says that? Well, when Nathan uses that language, what he means is when the heathen nations found out about what David did, they were going to mock God. They were going to laugh at God. They were going to laugh at the cause of God. They were going to say stuff like, look at the kind of stuff that the people who serve the God of the Israelites do. We have better morals than those people. That's what they were going to say. They were going to mock God and mock God's cause. In fact, Paul makes a similar point over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I made reference to this a couple of minutes ago, but just go there in your Bible, please. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse number 1, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, it is actually reported. Paul says, I'm hearing about this. It is actually reported there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. Notice that language. That someone has his father's wife. Now in verse 2, he says you need to remove this brother from your midst. Exercise discipline. Withdrawal is how we would say it. Verse number 5, he says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Did you, do you not know? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Notice how in addition to being in a position to contaminate the church and influence the people of God to trivialize the seriousness, the seriousness of sin, this brother who was in adultery with his father's wife was also living a lifestyle that not even the wicked people of Corinth would condone. Not even the wicked people of Corinth would do the kind of stuff that this brother was doing. Not even the wicked people of Corinth would want to do anything with this kind of behavior. Not even those folks would want anything to do with this kind of stuff. In fact, beyond not wanting anything to do with that kind of gross behavior, once the people in that community found out about this, once they found out about this brother who was in adultery with his father's wife, they wouldn't want anything to do with that church. 
they wouldn't want anything to do with that local congregation. They would not want to be part of a group of people who claim to be living by a higher standard. But at the same time, they were tolerating such a gross sexual sin. Again, evangelism. The work of evangelism that a church is supposed to be engaged in. It was going to suffer. It was going to be severely damaged by this brother's sin and this church's tolerance of it. And the Apostle Paul knew that. The Apostle Paul understood that. In fact, that's exactly why Paul was telling them to get up and do something about this. Don't just sit there being apathetic. Hypocrisy can hurt the work of evangelism in a church, but not only can it hurt the work of God, it can also discourage and disappoint a lot of people. It can discourage and disappoint seasoned Christians. It can discourage the elders. It can discourage deacons. It can especially discourage young people in the church. You know, when I was a young boy, growing up around the Lord's people in East Texas, the preacher where my grandmother and I attended as far as I was concerned, he was my hero. As far as I was concerned, he was the best thing since sliced bread. I mean, he could preach out of this world. He had passion when he preached. He had zeal. He had emotion. He claimed all the time to really love God and want to go to heaven. He really inspired me as a young person to want to give my life to the Lord. He was a spiritual hero for me, but one day it was exposed. And when I say exposed, please understand, I'm talking about legally exposed. I'm talking FBI exposed. I'm talking newspaper, TV exposed. One day it was exposed that he was doing some things in his private life that, that were just not right. They were not only sinful, but they were illegal. They were gross, they were sick, and they actually got him locked up in prison for several years. It was a big scandal. And while God certainly forgave him for that if he repented, a lot of people were damaged and hurt. I, as a young person, was devastated. I felt that for years I had been fooled to believe a lie. I was torn up. It took me a while to finally get over that. And maybe you've gone through something like that before. Maybe you've also been severely hurt and damaged by someone that you viewed as a spiritual hero, but they were really living a double life. What I just want you to see this morning is there's a lot at stake. You see that? There's a lot at stake. When we don't strive to be the real deal, when we don't strive to be authentic and genuine in our faith, we don't just impact our relationship with God, but we also impact a whole bunch of people. We impact the world. We impact our kids. We negatively impact the church. We impact so many people in a negative way when we don't really try to live for Jesus. And so the purpose of this lesson is just to motivate us all to really live for Jesus. 
talk the talk and walk the walk. Be an authentic and genuine disciple all the time so we can, number one, please the Lord, but also so that we can maintain a positive influence in the lives of so many people. And maybe, just maybe there's somebody here this morning and you say, I have not been doing that. I have not been living a genuine and authentic life as a disciple. If that describes you, I want you to know that there's good news for you. I want you to know that the only sin that God won't forgive is the one you're unwilling to repent of. And so if you're willing to repent this morning and ask God to forgive you, forgive you, he will forgive you. Or if you've never given your life to him in the first place, you have an opportunity to do that this morning. But, but please understand that if you do that, if you repent of your sins and confess your faith in Christ and obey his commandments, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, the journey is just beginning. You have to strive to live for him every single day. You won't be perfect, but you've got to strive to the best of your ability to do his will. That's what being a Christian is all about. And so if there's someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel call in any way at all, we want to help you with that. Come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing. Amen.